Welcome to the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We are your hosts, Michael and Lauren Falk. We are physical therapists, athletic trainers, and strength and conditioning coaches at Kinetic Sports Medicine and Performance. We will be talking all things related to athletic performance for Milwaukee area athletes. Sports medicine, performance training, sports nutrition, recovery, and sports coaching. There's a lot of misinformation and myths surrounding athletic performance and injuries. This podcast is designed to bring current, factual, and evidence-based information to Milwaukee area athletes. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brett Furstel. This is an exciting episode for us as Dr. Brett is the newest physical therapist at our practice at Kinetic Sports Medicine in Milwaukee. Brett graduated from Carroll University with a bachelor's in exercise physiology and his doctorate of physical therapy. All the way through physical therapy school, Brett was a, phys- a strength and conditioning coach and personal trainer at Impact Sports Academy and B Fitness in Delafield. Brett, welcome to the show and publicly and officially on the podcast, welcome to Kinetic Sports Medicine. I'm glad we could do this today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we always like to get a little background to let people know you better before we start talking. So where are you from originally and how did you end up uh, going to school at Carroll? Yep. So I grew up in a sort of small town in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. I grew up on a farm there. So from the country, um, wasn't too interested in getting into expanding my horizons and going throughout the state or going to big schools, big cities. So my older brother, who's a few years older than me, um, went to Carroll and he was at first pursuing exercise science pre-PT. And when I was in high school, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to get into. But the biggest thing I knew is that I liked sports and that was pretty much my biggest interest. And so since I knew someone who was going into a exercise science realm, I thought it made sense and it seemed interesting. So I naturally followed his path as I did when I was a little kid too. Um, he eventually dropped out of the pre-PT and went full on strength and conditioning route. And I clearly um, kept my route on physical therapy. Um, But the school seemed like it was fine. It seemed like he enjoyed it quite a bit. And so that's the way I chose. And I'm glad I did. I really had a good experience at Carroll overall. Um, I had a lot of good opportunities that I took advantage of. And I was one of those lucky students that the more I learned about the subject, exercise, science, physical therapy, you name it, the more I got interested in it and the more I sought out learning more. Um, And I've had quite a diverse like interest realm when I started. When I first got into college, I had a big interest in nutrition. I was studying exercise science, but all the research I ever did was on nutrition and that was just on my own. I remember in our English class, uh, the final paper we had to write, I wrote on like the laws of thermodynamics and how it equated to what a calorie is a calorie and nutrition and everything like that. Um, So I came from that and then when we got more into exercise science strength and conditioning classes I ended up falling in love with that even more and taking interest in that and so I'd talk to the professors and different people I knew in the field go to strength and conditioning conferences and you name it um and so that's pretty much a long-winded answer of how I landed at Carroll oh, that's, bit of that's great so I know you kind of said you're an athlete in high school um so and that's kind of what got you started with this but did you have anything like what sports did you play and did you have any you know, injuries or kind of what led you to think you might want to do physical therapy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So throughout my whole life, my biggest sport I loved to play was basketball. And I played that through all of high school. And I also did track and field, which I mostly was a field. I threw shot and disc. 
And then I decided my freshman year of high school to play football too, because I thought it'd be a nice, fun sport to play in the off season. And so I made it through a fine freshman year. And then sophomore year, first day of school, we had a game and I broke my leg. I fractured my fibula actually, and had a high ankle sprain. And so that was my first like real injury that I ever had. And my only one for that matter, knock on wood. But through that, I had surgery on it, went through PT, got back to playing sports. I vowed to myself that I didn't want to hurt myself in football to take away from basketball again. So I stopped football. And then, so I had hardware put in. And then that following year, I actually got it all taken out. So I had surgery again, went through PT again. And even in that time, that was probably my sophomore, junior year when that happened. I didn't think to myself, oh, PT is the route I want to go. I honestly didn't really consider it until like senior year when I'm deciding what I wanted to do after high school. And that just sort of played into my mind. It seemed like a fine job. They're helping people feel better, get back to what they love. So it seemed like a good interest. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And it sounds like kind of as you got into it, you know, you really, really fell in love with it, which I think is important for any students to like keep in mind. It's great to have a thought of what you want to do, but you know, once you get in school, you actually have to make sure you, <laughs> you like the thing that you, that you thought you did in high school. Cause uh-huh. some, sometimes they, things change. Exactly. And, and it's, it's normal if they change. I think it's completely fine. And I was a little worried it would because like my brother was always telling me the reasons that he dropped out of the PT. And I was like, oh gosh, am I going to think the same thing? But PT is such an interesting profession that you can get different experiences and different settings you get into. So to me, it's really what you make of it. And if you find the setting that you love, that which I have, I think it makes a big difference. Yeah, no, that's uh that's great. So I know, um, you know, when we were kind of getting to know you better, one of the huge, huge pros and, and things that we were looking for um, was that you had this background as a strength conditioning coach. So I know you worked all the way through physical therapy school. What have you, what have you taken from your experience and learned as your experience um, as a time as a strength coach that you now apply to your practice as a physical therapist? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind and the biggest is really being in the trenches, if you will, and seeing what the demands are placed on a given athlete. This can be, I worked with a lot of kids elementary school through all the way through college, and you actually get to see the training that takes place that they do, how vigorous it can be. And what I did a lot of times is I was working with sports that I hadn't otherwise played or knew a lot of. So I'd go to games, I'd honestly just like research sport rules and look to look to learn about more about the sport and see what it actually takes to play and even be decent. And so that's been a big thing that's sort of been eye-opening, especially when comparing it to the physical therapy realm, because I think a lot of times physical therapists who are trying to get athletes back to return to play don't have a good grasp on what they're actually getting them back to. I think there's a little bit of a gap. And I don't think it's not to blame any PTs or clinics or anything. I just think it's a specialty to get into, just like a, a neuro rehab, cardiac rehab, you name it. I think it's its own specialty that needs to be in, in that plan of care um, to optimally serve the athletes that we're working with. Um, and so basically it's just like shaped my thinking to know what the end goal is. So you're seeing them day one, maybe they're in crutches, they can't even weight bear. But if you know that they're getting back to playing hockey or gymnastics, now that you know what the end goal needs to look like, what your rehab needs to look like to prepare them to get back to, you can work backwards from there and have a better plan of care. Yeah, no, I think that's 
something that we talk about like all the time. I mean, strength conditioning and physical therapy, they're really, there's a lot of overlap. We're really doing the same thing. It's just a lot of times um, we're starting in a different spot. You know, we're mm-hmm. not starting with a perfectly healthy athlete. They've got some deficits, but we're trying to get them back to where they were beforehand. And I, I just think I agree. It, it, athletes go back underprepared a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more with that one. All right. Well, so let's dive into a little bit more um, specifics. So kind of since joining our uh, clinic, um, you're seeing a variety of patients in different sports. But one of the things that we've really had you um, expand on and focus on is ACL rehab. So kind of give us a 20,000 foot view of some of what you found recently um, with ACL rehab and some of the philosophies that you're incorporating. Yeah. So diving into the research and a little bit on like own clinical experience, Big topics that I'd say is, in general, I don't think our PT profession is great at treating it. And the reason I say that is statistically, not a big proportion of athletes, or not as many as I'd like, are returning to their pre-injury level of sport or their performance. I think anywhere from around, you could correct me on this, but around a third don't return to their previous level of performance or even sport. And then of those two-thirds that do return, about a quarter of them tend to get re-injured, whether it's the same knee, opposite knee, you name it. And to me, that's significant. If I had that injury and I have a 66% chance of even returning, and then if I do, a quarter of my chances that I get hurt again, that's kind of scary. And I, I don't know, to me, that's the part where we need to do better, and yep. I think we can. And part of that that plays into it um, is that we overall, I don't think, do a great job at assessing either. And part of that, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I know in one study that I was looking at, I think 70% of PTs surveyed didn't use any type of like objective testing. They used manual muscle tests to determine if their strength levels are back. Um, and on top of that, if they do use objective criteria, that's awesome, but they're still returning to play without meeting the, the standards that they should. I think a, a whole third in certain studies, depending on what you look at, don't meet the objective criteria to return, but they still do. Yeah. And I know you need to really take into account the whole person as a person because the sport might be a ton of their social life and well-being. So there is more to that, that they don't necessarily 100% need to pass everything. But to me, that can, needs to be better. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's just something that we see um, you know, it's like a cliche that if you're not assessing, you're guessing, but mm-hmm. especially with this injury, I mean, there's just, we have assessments that are definitely valid and have been shown to, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, they're not everything. They're not like perfect by any stretch, but they're a bare minimum and, and it's just not being implemented right now. Um, so I know you had some experience during some of your clinical rotations and, and previously before coming to us of, of working on ACL rehabs in a more traditional kind of insurance-based clinic compared to um, what, what we're doing here. Um, you know, I've talked about it before and again, not, not knocking anybody. There's great providers that, that do mm-hmm. good work, but what are just some challenges of working with patients in, in that model? Yeah. Um, from my like own experiences, all my clinicals were in insurance-based models and the the number one thing the first thing you'll typically think of is you're capped on usually number of visits that insurance is going to provide and generally that'll dictate what the pt's plan of care looks like what the family decides or the patient decides that they want to follow through with 
And so what often happens is patients are usually discharged once they can return to school, their work, whatever it is, and they can do that fine. Generally, that's, I'd say, around a six-month mark. And usually at that point, too, they maybe are often left with vague um, recommendations on keep training or just progressively get back into your sport, you know, work on some some certain drills and then just do some scrimmages and then you'll be fine to back to play. And again, that's a part of it that we're not assessing later on. So the cap number of visits is going to be one thing. And with the testing, it's not necessarily, you might have awesome PTs at these clinics, but sometimes the clinics don't just, they don't provide the testing equipment needed to really get that, those objective measures. Um, and so that's going to be a limitation in just the clinic, whatever it happens to be at. And then one of my other things is most insurance-based clinics from my experience are like a general orthopedic or they might say they're sports, but they're really seeing geriatrics and a wide range of people from their ages and their activity level and everything like that. And that's again where I think this realm and this particular injury succeeds best in a specialty realm, that being sports and working with PTs who have the equipment to properly test and to train and the knowledge base to train appropriately um, because it's very different when you're challenging someone who's just working to get back to walking around their home and doing things on their own versus, like I said, knowing what the end goal is and what they need to be able to get to to get to is that it's not an easy rehab. It's yeah. not at all. And people who think it is, like, it's oh, it's just the knee, you just need to get it stronger and return them. There's so much more to it that comes every single month and every single day that that's where I think it really benefits from specialty clinics, specialty clinicians that really dive into this and work with it frequently. Yeah. So. No, I agree. I mean, it's something that just before we were recording this in the office today and just before that you're you were working with, one of our, um, you know, professional basketball playing clients and working to get them back from one of these ACL injuries. And, you know, we're out there doing um, max effort 20-yard dashes <laughs> to a hard single-leg squat and, or stop. I mean, it's the forces in some of these these athletes they're experiencing on the court is two to three times body weight. Mm-hmm. And if we're not preparing them for that in their rehab, we're, we're doing them disservice. Like, they might leave our clinic and you might say like, oh yeah, they did awesome. Their knee feels great and man, they didn't have any issues and they're going to do amazing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those athletes, we're just finding that they're, they're underprepared. It's like mm-hmm. they were, they're pushed to 70%, but as soon as they go back to that game and it's a hundred percent, um, that's where we see those second injuries. Yep. And, we, and I think when you have a clinic that has, you know, 40 yards with the turf and you can work on full level speed, that's great. That's one thing compared to clinics that just don't have the space to really challenge it. But I understand, you got to understand there's still limitations to what we're doing, that it's never going to replicate, whether it's practice or game situations. But it's just doing as best you can to prepare them. But just always understand that there's limitations no matter how awesome your facility is or how yeah. smart your clinicians are and things like that. No, exactly. There's still that, you know, we're getting them back to that level to get them ready for that exactly. next step and trying to have it be as small of a gap as, as possible. Yep. So. yep. Okay, so you've kind of along these lines, you've really been uh, revamping and, and kind of diving into our ACL protocol and trying to get it out of out of my head and out mm-hmm. of your head and out of the research and, and into a more structured format. Um, 
So one of the things that we've really always emphasized is this criteria ba- a criteria-based approach to this rehab. So um, what are we talking about when we say a criteria-based approach to ACL rehab? Yep. So criteria-based approach, I usually just compare it to, and what it's often compared to is just like a time-based approach, is the criteria one is that along different timelines-ish, you're setting these objective criteria that they have they should be hitting in order to begin plyos or running and then eventually at the end of rehab to when it's going to influence your decision on when you, they can start returning to contact sports and everything like that. So instead of just using six months or three months that they can return to running, six months they can go back to drills and then nine months or something like that that they can return to full play, it's getting more into specifics of strength, um, hop test measures, functional performance, watching how they're actually moving, and then subjective from the patient and how they feel and everything too, is hitting these and making decisions based off of that rather than just time alone. Yeah, no, I, I think that's key. And I think it's it's key from a decision-making process like what you're talking about. But the, the second thing I think it's really important for, really helpful for is like, so empowering for the athlete to say like okay here's we're in this phase like whether it's right after surgery and it's like okay these are the five things that we need to hit by four weeks to keep you on track or these are the you know giving you these objective targets like particularly athletes they're goal-driven people like we have this game we have to win we have got how many points you score like they want they have these goals and sometimes in the rehab process those get taken away and it just sort of ends with this like nebulous like okay nine months is a long time to play like how do i know that i'm progressing and by having these criteria it like keeps them focused on each phase like these are the important things and it can be super motivating for them like they get really proud of these like little wins mm-hmm. could be range of motion could be strength could be power things but they just keep seeing that that progress over time yep and that's a great point i think with working with athletes and knowing working with athletes is it's great to say and it's something you learn in a textbook like having criteria to meet people are motivated to get there but it really 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 does make a difference when you're working in strength and conditioning and you have time gates and you're telling them they need to beat the time that they just had they will 110 percent work harder than if you just tell them to run 20 yards as fast as you can and part of along part of a, along those lines that i think is really important is knowing how to coach someone and appropriately for what you want. So just this just brings into my mind is with athletes, you generally want to get their strength up and then you want to also improve their speed and force production. And in order to do that, it's like, sure, textbooks say maybe working six reps at a, a lightish weight, but you're moving quick. And so it's one thing to just tell an athlete that, but to really drive it home that just going through the motions on something that's light isn't going to make them faster. They actually have to put the effort into it to get them faster. And that's where it's kind of nice if you have force plates and things like that, and you can use that during training to, again, give them feedback on if they're working harder every single time. Because those small efforts in the long run make the dis- the difference in the long run too. So it just kind of goes along with exactly what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. It's a nine-month process, but it's we get to that or nine to 12 or 24-month mm-hmm. process, but we get to that end goal by like having cons- stacking consistent 
improvements each day over over that entire period exactly so okay well let's let's um if we've got any athletes that are going through acl rehab right now let's kind of get specific with some of our phases so mm. um in the kind of early phase immediately post-operatively um what should people be focusing on and and what are some criteria to know that you're ready for the next steps yeah so these these early criteria are very important because everything builds upon the thing before it so one of the first things I always try to get is equal hyperextension range of motion from side to side so, or where around they were at before. And patellar mobility too, so that kneecap mobility should be fairly normal. Usually I like to shoot for the first one to two weeks. Yeah. If they can get that early, they're gonna be way better off that we're not spending a month, six weeks down the road, spending time trying to get motion back when we could working on strengthening and different things like that. So. The range of motion comes first, and then really along those lines is going to be, we want to get that quad firing as soon as we can and firing well, because that's one that after knee surgery just does not like to respond. And so I say like a normal quadriceps contraction, and sometimes it can be used like a straight leg raise. So if you're lying on the table, you're trying to lift your whole leg off the, the table, keep it in as straight as you can. I like to shoot like in the first two weeks, like five degrees or less leg, and then immediately just trying to get it as equal to the other side as you can. So zero degrees or any hyperextension that they might have. Um, those are the most important ones for me yeah. right away. And then soon along with that is usually the bending of the knee will come, um, but I do still like to hit some criteria that we can. So 90 degrees or so by about two weeks, 125 by four. But again, if they don't happen to hit those, it's not the end of the world because it usually does come, but I like to have those criteria to, again, to be able to hit, to set goals. And then early on is having them walking as normally as they can. But if you don't have good quad contraction or the range of motion, you're not gonna get that. So again, they all sort of overlap on top of one another. Yeah, that's kind of what we explain it to people in those early phases, it's like chicken and the egg. Like your mm -hmm. quad's not gonna wanna fire if your knee's not straight, mm -hmm. if your knee's not straight, the swelling's not gonna wanna go down. Mm -hmm. If those things don't happen, you're not gonna walk normally. So it's like, where do you, you know, you gotta just start start checking those boxes off early and um, and getting those things done. But it, I think, early, you know, mistakes that I see here is like, people wanna get immediately fancy in mm -hmm. these early phases and they, like they start skipping steps and it's like, oh yeah, well I had them, walking up and down stairs at two weeks it's right. like with perfect form it's like well was it perfect form like they couldn't straighten their knee and they like and now it's swollen and blown up again like mm -hmm. you know it's just being patient really checking these things off one at a time right and that's really really key because after surgery there's so much different learning that's actually taking place and skill development so sure you might be able to walk or go up steps with a little bit of a compensation but that little bit is down, down the long run is going to be really hard to break. So if you can just start them off on their right foot at the first place, then you don't have to battle the or come up with these battles later on, and it really makes a difference. Yeah. All right, so then we'll kind of be a little bit generic and say, you know, this sort of vague intermediate phase. So kind of from that immediate post-op, now they've got their range of motion back, that quad's going a little bit. Um, what do we want them to, to see? We see a lot of people at like three or four months out. Mm -hmm. um, where would we like them to be kind of in the pre-running or in order to start getting into jumping and, and impact type activities? Yeah, so generally the, the next step after those initial ones is just building some skill in certain movements that they're doing it well, continue strengthening, but keeping it light because the graft is still healing, so we want to minimize the stress on it. But 
usually around the three to four month time. I'm hoping that they can have full range of motion and maintain it, that it's not sort of fluctuating and that swelling is staying away. Hopefully they don't really have any pain anymore with most activities. Um, and if those are good, then you can start considering like a running progression and what you're gonna start from there. And so I usually like to see like 70% of their quad strength um, on their operated limb compared to their other one. Um, you can do like single leg squat tests, same around like 70% of how many reps they're doing and the quality will matter too. And then I like to consider hip strength. That should be within 70%, if not close to the same. And then I like to start with like running progressions. So stuff like wall drills, um, maybe band resisted stuff, sort of working on the technique before you actually start running. Because another topic that can always be brought up is do you just start with a four mile an hour jog and you count that as running or do you want to try to get them back to what their sport's actually going to look like and work on technique to get into usually sprinting, accelerating, stuff like that. Yeah. So I like to see sort of those objective criteria to be confident that we're probably safe to begin running progressions. And again, trying to not reinforce any compensations that might be about and trying to really nail in the running form and tolerance to running basically overall. Yeah. And I can't tell you how big a difference it's made from early in my career where um, we didn't have the technology that we have now where we were able to measure strength and um, kind of take these objective criteria. And we would just sort of guess when they were ready to run or wait 12 or 16 weeks and have them start. Um, I We spend so much less time working on running form and like having people that have come back after they ran there. Now there's knees swollen again mm-hmm. because we just we continue to work on strength until it's good enough. Um, and then we go back and run and they're like, they look totally normal. Like they don't have an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, what we were seeing was people that weren't ready. We were starting to run now. Knee, now it hurts and he gets sore. I'm staying there for like an hour, cueing them to like <laughs> spend more time on that leg, bend your knee. And mm-hmm. you know, they're like trying and you know, reflecting on it. It's like, well, duh, they just, they didn't have the strength to do that. I was asking them to do something that they weren't capable of. Right. And um, since we've taken this approach, we just see so many less issues as we get started with that. Yep. Yep. And, you know, I would say just, again, our experience and is that we, it's been very rare recently that we're seeing people coming in for testing around this time um, that have been working other places or, or following um, different things that are meeting these criteria. We're seeing substantially lagging quadriceps strength that's really you know quite frankly very far behind like we're thinking 70 percent is like minimum and in an ideal world and Mm -hmm. we've seen multiple athletes in the past eight to 12 months here that are coming in at this time frame at like 30 percent quad like strength uh, 40 percent 50 percent but they're way under these marks and it's just it needs to be something um, if you're going through this rehab, this muscle needs to be a priority early in your early in your uh, rehabilitation process so that you stay on track. Mm-hmm. I, I like to just use like the thing, the, the saying that anything good takes time. So it's not something that you want to rush. You're not going to get better because of it if you rushed. It's one that takes a lot of hard work. Like I said, this, this rehab is it's hard. It's really long. You need to be patient and you need to just put in the reps and get those progressions down. And that's where I think it really helps to have these criteria to hit. Cause you know, at around 
certain time frames, you got you want to be able to hit these criteria. And again, it's just working back on how you're actually going to be able to achieve that. So then you have a goal in mind. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of starting at the end and then and then building that plan backwards. Mm-hmm. So, um, so let's kind of jump up to the sort of sports specific phase, if you will. So not mm-hmm. necessarily going back to practice, but mm-hmm. like uh, we like to do a lot of agility things in here. So kind of once okay they're doing some jumping they're doing a little bit of running but now we want to start working on stopping starting changing direction agility type things um around when do we see that and what what types of things are you looking for to know that someone's ready to take that next step yep so if it was like a really good surgery or rehab so far they're they've been doing really well around a six month time frame is where i'll generally shoot for and I'm hoping to have, again, these objective criteria to begin, I call them like non-contact drills. So your agility drills that are closed environment to start, and then you can add reactive components to it. But I like to see at least 80% quad strength um, on their surgical side. And then this is where we can compare certain hop testing too. So single leg hop, triple hop. Um, I like to look at like single leg vertical jumps too, because I think it just gets in different sort of plane, not planes, but directions, if you will. And then keeping up with the sort of single leg hop test, like around 85%, and then hip strength around the same. And then you can start comparing hamstrings to quadricep ratios too. So around a 0.5 would be good for this time to me. Um, And then if those are hit and they're about six months or later, is even if they were to somehow hit these at four months, I wouldn't be super apt to having them do these higher level drills because things are still healing for a really long time. So trying to just keep that in mind. But usually if they can hit those numbers and they feel confident, they're overall looking good, then we'll begin some of those non-contract drills. Again, starting with like closed um, environments. And then as they get really good at those, they're moving well, they're confident, and then begin to have them react to different stimuli and make it a little bit harder that way. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's perfect and really really good guidance for people that that might be out there because i think this is the phase that we see a lot of confusion around because this is you know in most cases where you're definitely done with physical therapy at this point and so maybe you left with some general guidance from your therapist but um, insurance has probably run out and and a lot of times you're kind of on your own Um, hopefully you're doing like some type of structured strength conditioning program and there's a lot of really talented strength coaches out there doing these type of things but you know they're their skill set and their expertise is taking healthy athletes and improving that performance. Mm-hmm. And they're not always the most familiar with like some of these lower level steps. Like, okay, how do we go from like, I know how to make you run faster, but mm-hmm. how do I, how do I get you back to running as fast as you were, were before? Mm-hmm. And um, so I think this is good, just helpful information, hopefully for people that are sort of out there like, I don't, I'm this far and I'm kind of lost. I don't know what to do next. Right, definitely. And the other thing that I failed to mention too is I say six months, but I've also seen people that come in and they're eight months out hoping to just get testing to basically get cleared to play. And they come to find that they're at 70% or 65% of these numbers. And I, I'm just trying to be straight up with them and tell them that look, there's a lot of things we need to work on still, and I don't know if you're doing yourself a big service on just trying to advance your your drills and getting back to play. I think there's these low-hanging fruit that we need to, need to attack that you'll be better in the long run. So six months is a general like ideal, but again, these numbers are what I like to hit so they can 
keep progressing and not have to work backwards again. Yeah, no, absolutely. Every everyone is uh, is very specific. Um, so kind of that last phase, it's really that return back to sport. Um, you know, it's a lot of the same same things that we've already talked about that we're looking for. It's really just kind of taking that next step and, and getting really above that 90% goal. So mm-hmm. rather than just repeating all the same variables, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to talk about like, what do we sometimes mean when we say like return to sport or like someone's cleared? Because I think that's that's always like a big, very vague term. Like mm-hmm. you're cleared to go back. Well, what, what are they cleared for, if that makes sense? Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that needs to be considered. And I don't know. I don't know. I simply don't know how often it is. Um, but generally, if they hit, like, around, like you said, around the 90% range of a lot of these tests, then I'll say they're cleared to begin, I'll say it like contact play. And so I'll usually try to spell out whatever sport they're in, what this actually means. So if we just use basketball for an example, this could mean they can start playing one-on-one versus an opponent and they're actually playing their sport. And if they can tolerate that fine, they're not having any reactions, they are confident, then 2v2, 3v3. And then eventually they can start participating full like five-on-five team scrimmage, so practicing. And even with that, there might be limitations case by case. But it, the biggest goal with this is that they're building their comfort and confidence in a new task. And the environments change and the, all these things make a difference. And they're, so they're building their confidence. And the other thing is that they're building their work capacity and load tolerance to what they're doing, that they're not just jumping back into playing 40 minutes in a full basketball game. They're building their their minutes basically and then from there once they're practicing i'll usually limit minutes in games because that's a whole other environment too and then slowly increase their minutes from there and then eventually maybe they're cleared to play as much as they they can and so it is a process even if they're cleared to return to play they're cleared to start small and then build and build their work capacity because i think that's neglected and i think it's something that needs to be considered too yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's something that definitely needs to be a, a team approach to these decisions with a therapist, a strength conditioning coach, a doctor, the sport coach, mm-hmm. the family, the patient. There's, there's a lot of kind of people involved in these decisions. And we just really encourage any athletes that are going through this injury to like, you know, really get that team of people around you that are really able to work together and support you and, and help guide you through through this first really full season back and, and then that second season back even mm-hmm. is, is kind of where we're, we're out of the, the highest danger zone and you're really all the way back and, and anybody that you talk to that, that second year like you felt fine the first year but that second year you feel so much better and, mm-hmm. and everything's just really kind of back to normal yep yep. and one thing to end on that is if they do return to their, their play they're sort of cleared maybe they're not seeing any physical therapist at all maybe they're just practicing their sport they're not getting any training in it's important to continue strength training and continue to monitor progress or regressions because changes still happen two years down the road and even more. Yeah. So if you can keep assessing throughout, whether it's before a season, in the off season, if they're trying to make some progress and just keeping an eye on things and then you can adjust training based on new data you get. So yeah. it's just that ongoing assessment and trying to just keep players healthy for the long run because... This is a surgery, too, that not only are they hopefully going to return to sport, but they're going to have to live with their knee the rest of their life, even when they're done with sports. 
So trying to keep that knee healthy for the rest of their life so hopefully they don't deal with any issues down the road too is something to consider. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not who gets back on the court first, but who stays there longest. Definitely. And in the end, that's successful. Yep. Well, that's, that's really great information. Um, I'll put this in the show notes too, but if anybody is listening to this and wants even a little bit more information and, and some of the visuals that, that go along with it, Brett and I put together a online webinar that we did like three or four weeks ago now. Um, we've, we've actually got the recording of that and we'd be happy to share with anybody. So um, if if you're intrigued by this, want to learn even a little bit more, feel free to um, just uh, message us online or through our website. We'd be more than happy to, to share that webinar and more of that information. So um, all right, Brett, we're going to finish with kind of a fun lightning round to uh, just Again, let people get to know you a little bit better and maybe learn something about about you or the greater Wisconsin area. So um, what is your favorite hobby outside of work? Favorite hobby? That's, that's to me, a pretty easy one. It's been a hobby of mine since I was honestly like in kindergarten, but I love cars. Basically, anything to do with cars. Um, no, not necessarily like the old ones, but I'm a big modern car person. Um Favorite car ever is a Mustang, and that's been my absolute dream car since I was probably five years old. So that's still on my my goal list. But I love going to car shows, going to races, watching videos of cars, reading about them, you name it. But that's what I spend a lot of my free time on. That's that's great. You would you get along with my dad very well. <laughs> put you guys in a room and and let you. My my grandfather owned a. Good, or not owned, but he managed a Goodyear tire stores. And so my dad work, grew up working on cars and, oh, and yeah. changing tires and, and all that. So it's, it's always interesting to me too, because I don't, I have no idea where I got it from. No one in my family is like really big on cars. Um, I just picked it up somewhere and I've been like the only one that's just loved it. That's so I, I don't, I couldn't tell you where. <laughs> that's great. All right. Um, so I know you're uh, big into weightlifting and have done some uh, extensive continuing education and I would expect a podcast in the, in the future uh, it's really going into the details on weightlifting. But what's your what's your personal best right now on a clean and jerk and a snatch? Um, not the most impressive. It's definitely still a work in progress. But clean and jerk, the most I've ever done was 110 kilos. Um, most of my training is in kilos, so that's why I'm saying that. I don't know where it is off in pounds right off the top of my head. Yeah. And then snatch has been a new one that I've been working on. I've delayed it because if you've ever tried, it's a hard lift. So that was my delay in training. But I managed 80 kilos at my best. Um, so, again, work in progress, but I love it. That's, that's great. It's something that we really think or appreciate about all our PTs and, and try to – maintain is making sure that we don't just recommend other people <laughs> pursue these uh these active goals like a lot of us are working on some some type of recreational athleticism ourselves even if we're relatively average <laughs> so very much so yeah that's why we're coaches and clinicians not actual athletes doing it <laughs> exactly um okay no you're a big cheese curd guy so uh what's the best cheese curd that you've had in the area uh, best like deep fried cheese curds I've had. I love Revere's in where I live is Delafield, Wisconsin. They're really, really good. But I have to try Milwaukee Ale House. I've heard it's really good, and if not better than Revere's. Um, so that is on my list. Okay. There we, there we go. Next staff outing. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll go down and do that. So, okay, last one. Any, um, any hidden talents that no one would expect? Ooh, that's a tough one. I don't know if I'm the most talented in general, but um, back in my day, I was – 
quite good at Guitar Hero Metallica. And I only say that <laughs> that particular game because I practice that one a lot, and it is a lot of practice. And I think I was able to complete every song on Expert, if not close to every song. So there's my hidden talent. There you go, Guitar Hero. That's something that I haven't <laughs> I haven't thought about that for years. So yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much again for your time and sharing your knowledge today, Brett. Um, and thanks to everyone that was listening to this. Hopefully you got a lot out of it and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new that will help you achieve your goals. If you did, we would love for you to head over to Instagram and search MKE Sports Podcast. Like, follow, or comment on today's episode. If you have questions, comments, topics, or guest suggestions, reach out through that Instagram account. Your feedback will help us make this podcast as relevant and informative as possible. If you have additional time, we'd appreciate your help in spreading this information. If you could head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, it will help us spread the word to more athletes in the greater Milwaukee area. Have a great day, and we will see you next time.